Our Old Testament reading is Daniel 7, verses 7 through 18. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings, were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. The mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped with its left and stand what was left with its feet it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns i considered the horns and behold there came up among them another horn a little one before which three of the first horns horns were plucked up by the roots and behold in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things the ancient of days reigns as i looked Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. Then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and the kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. He told me and made known to me the interpretation of the, of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, everybody. It's good to be here. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Life is Beautiful. Has anybody seen that? It's one of my favorite movies. It came out about 15 years ago or so. Um, but it's a really interesting movie. The first half of it 
is basically a love story. It's kind of a lighthearted movie that tells the story of these, uh, this couple meeting and falling in love. And then about halfway through, it jumps ahead several years, and the complete tone of the movie changes. The movie transitions into the story of uh, this Jewish man trying to protect his family in the midst of a holocaust. And have you ever watched the movie or any, any story like that? When stories change gears in the middle, it can come as a shock to the system. But <clears throat> when done well, it can be an extremely effective way uh, to communicate something. Life is Beautiful, it, was, it ended up getting nominated for seven Academy Awards, even though it was a foreign language film. Most of it was in Italian and German um, because it was so jarring. And the book of Daniel is a story like that. Daniel changes genres right in the middle of the book, and that's where we are today. In Daniel chapter 7, we have the ultimate uh, gear shift. So far, if you've been with us, you know that this book has been the story of several major events that happened over the lives of a few different kings uh, while the exiles were living in Babylon. But now, for the rest of this book, chapters 7 through 12, we're going to get something really different. We're going to be reading a series of visions that Daniel received over the whole course of his life. But unfortunately, for most of us, when we get to chapter 7, that's when we start to zone out in Daniel, right? That's, and that's for good reason, right? Things, things get weird, <laughs> You know, we were talking about things we understood. We were talking about kings, and we were talking about uh, miracles. But now we are talking about lions with wings. We're talking about leopards with four heads and, and beasts with ten horns. And you kind of start to wonder what's going on. But I want to encourage you here to, to, to lean in, to try to pay attention, to try to get your mind around what we just read and what we're about to study, because this text most scholars will tell you, is the most important chapter we've come to yet. This is the, the, the pinnacle of the book of Daniel. It is a story that has the power to encourage us, to ground us, even in the midst of some of life's most difficult circumstances. But in order to see that today, we're going to have to wade kind of into some deep waters. <laughs> we're going to have to look at these images and, and try to understand what they mean. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to pick this apart first by seeing the apocalyptic picture. Then as we, after we look at that picture, I want us to try to gather the message that it conveys. And then finally, I want us to look at the response that message demands. So first we're going to see the picture, then the message, and then the response. So right here, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream of his head as he lay in the, and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So, like I said, we're, we're changing gears here. We are switching to a new genre of literature. Uh, this is a genre that is called apocalypse. And just like modern writing has different genres, uh, ancient writing did as well, and many of them are found in Scripture, right? So if you're sitting down 
and there's a coffee table in front of you, and there's two books on top, and one is a history book, and the other is a book of poetry, uh, we understand, we recognize genres. You, those books don't even really need a title or a cover. When you open them up and you start to read them, you'll be able to pick out which one's history and which one's poetry, right? Each genre has its own recognizable patterns that we can latch onto. And that's important because when you know you're reading poetry and not history, it changes the way you understand what you're reading, right? So when Maya Angelou writes in Still I Rise, when she says, I am a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. That doesn't mean when you're writing her autobiography, you know, Maya Angelou was a great ocean who also wrote poetry, right? That's not what it means. She's communicating to us figuratively, and we get that because we know what poetry is. Well, it's the same deal when we read the Bible. You got to know what kind of literature you're dealing with if you are going to make sense of it. And that can be problematic when we get to apocalypse. Because we still have history today. We still have poetry today. We know what those things are. But we don't really have apocalypse, right? There aren't modern apocalypse books that are coming out and becoming bestsellers on the New York Times list. We are not familiar with this. And so when we come to a book like this, when we get to chapter 7, it can be nearly impossible for us to understand. One of my professors said that when we get to apocalypse, it can feel like we are entering a foreign country. I think that's accurate. So before we do that, before we enter this foreign country where people are speaking a different language that we don't understand, I just want to tell you about this type of literature and some of the main characteristics uh, that you'll always find in it uh, to help us prepare for what we're going to see. So four quick things that you always find. This is how you'll know you're reading Apocalypse in the Bible. First, Apocalypse always has a common theme. Apocalypse is about judgment and salvation. It always deals with the ultimate triumph of evil, or ultimate triumph of good over evil. It has a common theme. It also has, a, secondly, a common medium. I actually learned this this week. I didn't realize this, but Apocalypse is always written. So when you're reading the books of prophecy in the Bible, often those messages were meant to be spoken. You know, God will tell the prophet to say such and such, and then later it gets recorded and written down. But Apocalypse is always written, like in our passage where it tells us that Daniel wrote this down, or in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, John is told to write down these words. This is intended to be written, to be read, to be heard. Thirdly, it has common imagery. And that image, those images are always cryptic, right? Uh, The things that you find in Apocalypse, they're not straightforward. They're often difficult to understand. And the images are fantastic images. So in a prophet, you might read about like a bowl or a cup or some symbol that you can recognize from your day-to-day experience. Or when Jesus is sharing a parable, it's about a circumstance that seems familiar to us. But Apocalypse talks about dragons. It talks about beasts with horns. It talks about things that are not a part of our common experience. In addition to that stuff, it also brings in numbers. So there's numbers of things. And those numbers 
have a symbolic meaning behind them, and they're always vague meanings. So the numbers that come in, they, they, they're not completely clear what they represent or who they're talking about, and that's intentional. All of these visual uh, words, all of the pictures it's trying to communicate are, are intentionally vague because there is this overall message they want us to get rather than specific and detailed messages. There is this evocative imagery that they're using, but the, the whole point is to communicate a broad message. And so a lot of times when you come to texts like this, people make the same mistake over and over and over again. They, they find each one of these verses and they try to discern every single little thing and what it means and nail down some precise date of when something's going to happen. And this happened in recent memory. If you guys were here in 2011, maybe you recall Harold Camping. Do you remember this? He had bought billboards all over the city and people had given away their life savings to promote this message that the world was definitely going to end May 21st, 2011. And of course, it didn't, right? We're, we're still here. It's, it's interesting. When people interpret these things, they never figure the end of the world is going to be like 300 years from now, right? It's never like, get ready 300 years. It's always, you know, 20 years, five years, maybe next year the world's going to end. But that's not why we read this. There's, there's a common imagery, but it's intentionally vague. And then that brings us to the last thing. Apocalypse has a common purpose. The message in this type of writing is always meant to convey the spiritual reality of our universe. It's meant to convey that God has absolute control over history. He has control over the future, and he has control over the present. And that is an especially important message when things look bad. It's an especially important message when the world looks bleak to remember that God is in control. So as one, one author put it, he said, instead of thinking about this kind of writing, instead of thinking about the apocalypse as predicting the future, it's probably better to think of it as if it is unmasking, as if it is unveiling the reality behind our reality. It's pulling back the curtain and showing us what's already going on. Okay, so... Just kind of keep that broad idea of what apocalypse is in your mind, and now we're going to jump in. We're going to try to look at some of these things as they show up in our text. And I mentioned, these texts are profoundly visual. So let's, let's try to picture this as we talk about it, right? Let's you know, grab a seat in the, the heavenly man cave and, and, and visualize this picture on the, on the HDTV of our minds, right? Let's, let's figure out what it is that Daniel sees and then that might help us to understand the message that's coming across. Okay, so, so here it is. Now, you need to know this vision, we're rewinding a little in our story. So this comes to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So that is before the writing on the wall. It's before Darius, before the lion's den, before all that. Babylon is still standing when this vision comes. And, and here's how it starts. It says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now that picture of the, the 
sea being stirred up by God is, is a picture of the instability of the world. And these four beasts start to rise up, and we're told those beasts represent the different kingdoms of the world. And the first one is a lion with eagle's wings. And then it tells us that the wings are plucked up, the lion is made to stand. But just as soon as that happens, there's another beast. And this beast is like a bear, a a ferocious bear who has the ribs of the last victim still hanging out of his mouth. And this bear is told to arise, devour much flesh. And then next, there's another beast, and it's a leopard. But it's a leopard with four wings and four heads. And it says that dominion is given to this creature. And then after that, a fourth beast comes. And the fourth beast is the most terrible. It's, it's so terrible, in fact, he can't think of anything it looks like. There's nothing to compare it to. But it is terrifying. It has iron teeth. It crushes everything beneath it, and it has ten horns on its head. And then one of these horns, a small horn, it says has a mouth, and it has eyes, and it begins to speak. And then the scene changes. And all of a sudden, we are looking at the heavenly throne room. In verse 9, it says, I saw in the night visions. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, I know I just said all this stuff about being too specific in our application, but I need you all to notice, even in the heavenly throne room, the thrones are placed, right? There is a setup team in the heavenly throne room. So, you know, if you guys really want to prepare yourselves for glory, you might as well just go ahead. No, anyway. So, um, we see this figure sitting down on the heavenly throne, the Ancient of Days, and it's described that he he is pure, He is powerful, he's clothed in white, he is righteous, he's holy, and he commands the allegiance of all of creation, thousands and thousands of people, and he sits over them in judgment. And then the little horn keeps talking, and he distracts from this scene, and it tells us all of the sudden that entire beast is killed. The fourth and final beast is is killed, he's utterly destroyed, he's gone. And then another figure shows up. One who we are told is like a son of man. In the Ancient of Days, God gives him eternal power, authority. He he gives him the worship of all peoples and languages and nations. And that's the end. That's a a big image. That's a, a huge vision. So now let's try to see the message it conveys. What is this thing all about? Okay, it's worth noting that twice in this passage we see Daniel's response to the dream. Verse 15, Daniel says, My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions in my head alarmed me. And then the last verse it says, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel He sees this stuff, and he is anxious. He's terrified. And if you were here with us last week, that's an interesting thing to note, right? Because we just saw him last week be thrown into the lion's den, and it seemed like he didn't even break a sweat. He was calm and collected in the face of of certain death. But whatever Daniel has seen here has shaken him. 
It's terrified him. This is a lot scarier than a den of lions. So what is it? What got him so upset? Well, the angel tells him the meaning of this vision. In verse 17, he says, These four great beasts are the four kings who will arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's the message. He says there's going to be a bunch of terrifying kings, but they're going to lose. There are going to be these horrible, terrifying rulers over creation, but the ending is already written. God wins. But look at Daniel's response. He says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. So, as Daniel sees this great victory unfold before him, the the thing he wants to know about is the scariest picture in front of him. He wants to know about that fourth beast, that last kingdom. And that is a really great picture of our condition, isn't it? That we, just like Daniel, are are so often concerned with those temporary things that scare us instead of the the everlasting things that comfort us. We are, are so often worried about those things that will pass away, that keep us awake at night, instead of the things that we know are everlasting that could give us rest. Daniel has just been told that the saints are going to receive the kingdom of heaven and it's going to be forever, forever, and ever. But he's fixed on the beast. And and so are we. Right? We spend so much more time contemplating the forces around us that are causing us anxiety than we do resting in the power and the glory that's declared to us in the gospel. In this vision, we see kingdoms, we see them rise and fall. And I told you, people try, they have tried to figure out what these kingdoms are. They've tried to identify them based on the descriptions. I think it's fair to assume that that first one, the lion, is Babylon. But the other three, uh, they could be the three kingdoms that came afterwards. They could be the kingdoms leading up to the arrival of Christ. Or just as likely, you know, those ten horns could be just a number, a perfect number, representing all the kingdoms that will ever come until Christ finally returns. But that's, the who and the when are not really the point. The point is, there is a better kingdom. The point of this message is, there is a better kingdom for the people of God. There is an eternal kingdom. There is a kingdom that the author of Hebrews tells us is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That was the hope that was being offered to Daniel in this vision. That was the hope that the rest of the exiles needed. Right? That was the setting. Remember, we've talked about it uh, every week so far, but that's what was going on here. The situation is that people had been taken from Jerusalem hundreds of miles away and brought to Babylon as captives, being forced to live in this land that was not their home. And if this was their hope, you know, it should be our hope too. The New Testament tells us that the church today, we're also exiles. 
This world is not our home. This world is not the place where we belong. That's why we notice that things are broken. That's why we can tell things are incomplete. That's why nothing ever feels quite right. It's because there is a better home for the people of God. And so that means this vision has two applications for us, two easy ways we can apply this to our life. On on the one hand, it tells us, you know, as we watch one beast after another after another, it tells us that we should always expect to live in a beastly world. There will always be powerful forces at play who, who tear people apart, who conquer, who destroy. For Daniel, it was Nebuchadnezzar. For the, a couple generations later, it was Alexander the Great. More recently in history, we've had Stalin and Hitler and Kim Jong-il. But in addition to, to those kinds of beasts, there's the beasts of poverty and disease and addiction. There are the unjust policies and the systemic oppression through racism that chew up people and leave them like those ribs hanging out of the mouth of the beast. And as soon as one of them seems like they're gone, as soon as one of those sources of evil seems to be defeated, another one pops up in its place. And I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, that can be extremely discouraging. It can be frightening. This vision shows us that there is an enemy at work, but he's not going to prevail. On the other hand, we can also apply this personally. Because oftentimes the beasts that threaten us, the beasts that terrify us are a lot more immediate than that, right? We are just as terrified by losing the approval of our peers or worried about how we're going to pay the bills at the end of this month. We, we face down the beasts of depression, of loneliness, of uncertainty about what's going to happen tomorrow. And when we do, we're tempted to despair. We're tempted to give in to the enemy. In those moments, instead of looking to that ultimate vision, instead of trusting that God is, is going to win the victory, we're tempted to look to temporary things. We're, we're consumed by our, our stress and our anxiety. I, I was just uh, talking to a friend of mine this week. Um, she called me immediately after getting into a, a wreck. It wasn't her fault, uh, but it was, it was really going to impact her life. She was relying on driving to make a living. And on top of that, there's all sorts of other stressors in her life. She, she was stressed out by other things happening in her other job. She was stressed out by some conflicts in her relationship. And it was like when that, when that other car ran into her, it was the last straw. And she called and she said, I just don't know what to do. It feels like everything in this world is just stacked up against me. 
Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe that's how you feel right now. Well, in those moments, in that place, that is where, oddly enough, the apocalypse can be of great aid to us. It can be a huge help to our weak souls. Because here, God is trying to remind us that if you are only focused on the beasts right in front of you, then you're missing the big picture. The message of this vision is simply this. Lift up your head. You might not know what the next page of the story holds for you. But we know how it ends. The righteous judge will one day take the bench. And the evil one is going to be judged. And it tells us in verse 26 that his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey Him. God wins. God wins. So run to Him. God wins, so don't let the beasts of today distract you from your true hope. This vision conveys to us what Jesus very simply says in John chapter 16. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So that's the message. How do we respond to it? What, what do we do with what we have just heard? Well, you can't really blame Daniel for his response, right? You can't blame him for being confused about all the stuff he just saw. I mean, he just had a horrifying dream, a horrifyingly realistic dream where God chose to reveal the future to him using monsters, right? That would be rough. And remember, this is before, you know, computer-generated effects. This is before 3D glasses. He had never seen anything like this. It's no surprise that the chapter ends with him being terrified. But we have an advantage over Daniel. Because we know today a lot more than he could ever possibly understand about this dream. Because in the thousands of years that have passed since this moment... God has continued to reveal himself to his people. In the thousands of years that have passed since Daniel saw this vision, God has actually told us what some of these things mean through the rest of Scripture. And in the middle of this passage, probably the the most significant verse we come across ended up being one of the most important messianic passages in the Old Testament. One of the great places of hope for the people of God in the Old Testament. And it it was this, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It tells us there is this one coming like a son of man. And that's an interesting detail because he just described the Ancient of Days and he used a lot of human kind of imagery, right? He had white hair, that he was wearing a, a white robe. But there is something about this figure that is uniquely human. Something about this figure that is so human that Daniel tells us he is like a son of man. But in a very unhuman-like fashion, God gives him ultimate authority. God gives this one like the Son of Man the very authority of God. In fact, he gives him an eternal authority over all of the earth. And so as people read that verse, they realized that this awesome God-man was the Messiah. He was the deliverer that Israel was longing for. And so from this passage, fast forward about 500 years. And Jesus, he shows up on the scene and he starts using this term, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. And you can imagine, as he is doing that, his Jewish followers begin to get certain ideas about what kinds of things Jesus might do. Right? They expect him to conquer. They expect him to reign. They expect him to destroy. They expect him to slay the enemies of God. They expect him to usher in this age of eternal peace. But in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the problem with looking to this vision for hope, the problem with with looking to all the wicked people and hoping that they are defeated, well, it assumes that we're just the victims of evil. But if you know yourself, if you know your heart, you realize that, that we're not just the victims, but we're also the perpetrators. We participate in the injustice. We rebel against God. We are the people who, instead of resting in the hope of eternity, we are focused on these lesser beasts and we are serving them. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew if the Ancient of Days, if this righteous judge was going to sit on the throne in the judgment seat at that moment... We'd all be piled up with the beasts. But the glory of the gospel is this. That when Jesus, when the Son of Man finally came, He came in the way that nobody expected. He conquered, but not by His might. He conquered by His weakness. He didn't come in majesty. He didn't come in in pomp. But He came in service. He came in humility. And instead of calling the guilty to the carpet and slaying them on the spot, 
Scripture tells us on the cross, Christ was slain on our behalf. That he absorbed the wrath so that we could receive the blessing. That he was defeated in death and rose again so that we could reign with him forever. Forever and ever. And that's what we need to see this morning. That's the vision I want to draw your attention to before we leave, before we set out for a new week, before we re-enter a beastly world. I want you to, to ask yourself, what is the vision your eyes are fixed upon? What is the vision that has captivated your attention? Are you fixed on an election or, or a paycheck? Are you fixed on a deadline or, or whatever that stressful circumstance is that, that's just right in front of you? If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to look up. I want to invite you to see the real story. I want to invite you to see the world unmasked, to see the curtain pulled back, to realize the spiritual reality that lies behind this very moment. I want to invite you to look beyond that specter of the immediate and see the solid truth of the eternal. Maybe you're going to do that for the first time this morning. Maybe it's for the 500th time. But I want to invite you to see that this is a glorious thing. I want to invite you to repent. To repent from your distraction, to repent from your spiritual blindness, and instead, come find life. Come find rest in this one. This one like the Son of Man, who has won a victory once and for all, whose kingdom shall never be destroyed. Let's pray. Father, when we come to these texts, uh, they can be confusing to us. But Lord, I thank You that the message that lies behind them is, is it's crystal clear. That You win. That on the cross, You have defeated Satan, sin, and death. And Lord, I pray that we would come to You today for life. God, I pray that You would expose our sin, that You would expose our short-sightedness, and that You would help us to lay all that down and come to You at this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.